All right, flip open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're talking about the mind of Christ today, looking at the entire chapter. These are the words of God. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of word or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet we do not Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are being abolished. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. But to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the depths of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the depths of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. But he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will direct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and Holy Lord, as we turn to your word, may the Spirit of God rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. 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 You can be seated. Thus far in our study, we have seen that Paul's initial concern is the division that had taken central stage in Corinth. The competitive spirit of the Greco-Roman culture had infiltrated the ranks of the ecclesia here in Corinth. And from what we can tell, the Corinthians were swimming in a culture that placed tremendous value on philosophers and rhetoricians, those who were known for eloquence and persuasiveness in, in public oration. And apparently this had spilled over into a fairly seismic division over who their favorite Christian teacher or preacher was, and this was largely based on who had baptized them. None of the teachers would have appreciated such overly zealous, undiscerning devotion. All of them would have pointed the people to Christ instead. So word got to Paul, and he goes right after them, grabbing them by their baptisms, forcing them to look at the crucified Messiah all over again. In doing so, Paul forces them to recognize that worldly wisdom not only fails to, see, to, to understand the things of God, it fails to improve upon the gospel itself. Paul will explain that in verse 16. We have the mind of Christ. 
That is his gotcha statement for this particular section of his oration. Remember, chapters 1 through 4 are basically several mini-homilies and sermons directed at them, dealing with different types of things. Not only had the work of Christ in Corinth proven the absolute miracle of God's wisdom, it definitely proved that, Paul's own personal testimony did as well. He has two witnesses here. Paul wasn't an idiot, and by the way, I use that choice in a very particular way, uh, because the root of that word means somebody who is a common man, someone who isn't a philosopher. And Paul was not an idiot. He wasn't a common man. Uh, He definitely could outsurpass the thinking of the day, uh, but he chose to not rely on that, as we saw last week. Paul redefines what wisdom actually is. It is revealed in the cross. Uh, God's Spirit alone interprets God's wisdom to believers. God's Spirit grants the power for men to reflect on this wisdom. And God's Spirit grants maturity so that we can demonstrate the mind of Christ in all areas of life. So that's kind of what he's going to argue here is you, you have the Spirit. You need to develop the mind of Christ And you need that mind so that you can discern all things. So chapter 2 is basically a two-part homily. Paul reflects on his founding of the church in Corinth. He reminds them of how that got started. Remember back when, when I did this, here's what happened. Uh, He reminds them about the centrality of the cross and the profundity of the Holy Spirit. And in verses 1 through 6, he speaks about the message of the cross. It's not of this world. Then he goes in verses 7 and 8, he shows the message of the cross was something that was arranged before the creation of the world. It was God's wise and predestined plan. Peter confesses that in Acts. And it was delivered to the saints. It was hidden from the unsaved. And then in verses 9 through 16, we see that a message of the cross is uniquely tied to the Spirit of God. It's concealed from man, and it's only to be revealed or disclosed by the Spirit in the Scriptures. So let's examine this a little bit closer. Remember what we uh, talked about last week. God had sent Paul. He says that in chapter 1, verse 17. And Paul came to Corinth. He says this in verse 1 here of chapter 2. God sent, Paul came. And in coming to them, he didn't do so as a student of Plato or Socrates or Plutarch. He was, a, he was an apostle. He was the apostle of the crucified Messiah, which means he didn't, he didn't show up to Corinth working the rhetorical angles in order to win the crowds. That's what a lot of traveling philosophers and teachers would do. That's not what Paul chose to do. He came preaching the foremost witness of God in history. What is the foremost witness of God in history? Well, verse 2, Jesus and Him crucified. That is the witness in the testimony of God in history. Right there, the cross. A crucified, bloodied, beaten, dead Messiah. That's at the center. And in verse 2 there, that word crucified, and when you dig into the language, it's a perfect passive and in a participle and the greek language means that it's an action that was completed in the past but it still has ongoing effects in the present something done in the past but it has implications all the way forward through history so the core doctrine of god's self-revelation is the cross that is the core doctrine and it's something that's stamped upon 
us as Christians, we are people of the cross. And, and Christian means somebody who's like a little Christ or someone of the way of Christ. Christians were first called Christians in Antioch, but before that they called them the way. That's what Luke says in Acts. But really what we should call them, Christians are people of the cross. They're people of a Christ, but he's the dead and raised Christ. So the message is extremely lowly in comparison to the loftiness and superiority of man's wisdom. In verse 3, Paul admits that when he came to Corinth, it was in weakness. And he came in weakness because it mirrors the cross. The cross is, from the world's standards, weakness. And he says in verse 3, he came in fear and in much trembling. Some allege that this was because of his apparent failure in Athens. Well, he went to Athens, he completely failed. That was a botched operation, so he went west 50-some miles to Corinth. But Paul did not fail in Athens. He gained the attention, their attention, even at the highest levels of jurisprudence. Um, remember, they wanted to hear more, so he brought them before the high court. That's a huge success. I'm still waiting for my invitation to preach in the White House. But fear and trembling, Paul, it, it, when he says that, it simply means that he was level-headed and humble about his approach in Corinth. His reverence for the message eluded any sort of pompicity and arrogance. It's not something to boast in. Like, look how brilliant I am. I have a dead Messiah who was now raised three days later. So when he says he came in fear and trembling, that's what he means. A, a foolish a foolish, I put that in air quotes, doctrine doesn't need spectacular language, <laughs> nor does it need a man who is more concerned about appearances. In fact, his preaching, verse 4, wasn't even based on persuasive words of wisdom, which is code for Greek rhetoric. In other words, he, he, he came not to please the crowds with a rhetorical stunt. He came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The substance of his message wasn't the wisdom of men, nor was the presentation something worthy of an Oscar. Many Christians today are obsessed with that. Give me a pastor with skinny jeans and who can just tell a story. And that's what they're looking for. And Paul literally condemns that thinking here in this text. The, the sophists and the Epicureans, they were stone-cold rhetoricians. They didn't care. They wanted to impress the crowds with their brilliant intellect. And Paul wanted nothing to do with it. But why? Well, verse 5, he says why. So that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Faith in God presupposes not the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Faith presupposes power. And that's because God doesn't give people dead faith. When God gives faith and grants faith, because it is a gift, Ephesians 2 tells us, that gift is powerful. And you might, well, we don't have, can't go into that, but you might think, well, why is it powerful? Because you were dead and you're alive now. <laughs> That's power. It's resurrection power. But the message of a crucified Savior isn't attractive, as we saw in the previous section. It's not an attractive thing. And here, Paul's personal testimony isn't attractive either, at least when it's viewed through this Greco-Roman wisdom world, Paul was generally unimpressive. He even tells us in 2 Corinthians, he, he, he was essentially physically unimposing and by all appearances was quite a weak man. He's the type of guy where you look at him like, I could take him. That's Paul. He was physically unimpressive. 
But God uses weakness, remember? The Word of God ought not to be packaged with superficial so-called wisdom, this philosophical arrogance of Athens. Instead, it must be proclaimed in its raw form so that people know where their faith truly rests. It's amazing. It's like you have more degrees than a thermometer, and you can try to argue with somebody, and they will just go off on tangent after tangent about uh, dialectical thinking, and you, you can get into that. And I enjoy talking about that and had a, had a student recently with that conversation happening. But at the end of the day, I've said this before, I'm getting bored. Let's get to the heart of this. You've sinned. Christ has died for you. You must repent and believe. And that's because that's really the raw form of the gospel. And we don't need to package it with all this lights and lasers and stuff. So these first five verses set up the next section. In verse 6, we find out that Paul has an eschatological bone to pick here. The Corinthians, they were obsessed and infatuated with wisdom, and Paul deconstructs their false paradigm. But here, it's as if he says, wait a minute, you want wisdom? Let me tell you about wisdom. Oh, you are obsessed with wisdom? Let me show you what wisdom is. He redefines it. And wisdom among those who are mature is wisdom that belongs to those who have grown up, who have their senses trained, whose palates move from the milk of the word to the meat of the word. Mature Christians understand and they act on the cross of Christ from inside and out. Mature Christians are those who die to self daily, who are constantly in a state of repentance. That is what the message of the cross does for us. And Paul does speak wisdom here, but it ain't what they're used to. <laughs> he goes right after the heart of what their problem is. You see, the wisdom of the cross is something that belongs to the new age. It's the eschatological new heavens and new earth age, the age where Christ rules and reigns from heaven. The cross is God's apocalyptic event, we talked about this last week, whereby the old age is put to rest and the, the new age comes forth. But there's an overlapping of the ages, and that's what happened between Christ's death and resurrection in A.D. 70. There was an overlapping of that age. And how do we know this is what Paul's talking about? Well, because he says that the rulers of the old age were found to be wanting, and they are being abolished. That's verse 6. They're being abolished. And that old age was finally abolished in A.D. 70. The intellectual elite, along with the political and philosophical rulers, did not have access to this wisdom. They didn't have access to this wisdom. They are on their way out. Which, if you think about the historical and archaeological context, it's actually a very daring thing to say, what Paul says here. The imperial cult of Rome, remember, the, the emperors were deified like peak statism, okay, <laughs> where you must worship the emperor. The imperial cult had a temple that was situated right in the center of the city of Corinth, breathing down their necks every single day. This is how we worship. You can have all the other gods. You have to worship Rome, though. And Paul says, yeah, they're being abolished. No sweat. They're being abolished. Paul says their time is up. 
Everything Paul says here is God-centered. God destroys and God saves. God made them foolish. God decided. God chose. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. God is the one behind it all. He is sovereign. Don't worry. Don't panic. Now, this next section is another chiasm where it's A, B, C, B, A, kind of beginning, middle, end again. Verse 7 tells us that God's wisdom is hidden. It's hidden in a mystery. But verse 10 explains that God's wisdom is revealed through the Spirit. It's hidden in a mystery, but it's also revealed in the Spirit. Now, who is he talking about? Well, us, unbelievers. It's hidden, but it's revealed by the Spirit to believers. At the center, verse 8, is the cross, the crucified Lord of glory. This section, Paul, Paul is deeply Trinitarian here. God in his wisdom, Jesus in his cross, the Spirit in his searching revealing. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all over the pages here. Also in verse 7, God predestines. We, we, we see God hides, God decrees, God prepares, God reveals, God does the work of wisdom. God predestines or decrees for our glory. And in verse 9, God prepares for those who love him. So God hides in, there in verse 7, and yet God decrees there in verse 7. Having decreed, he then prepares in verse 9. And the final part in verse 10 is a God's revelation. And the reason I mention this is because the cross isn't something that just sort of happened. It wasn't, oh no, Adam and Eve sinned. We must figure this out now. We might as well give it a try. Maybe the second person of the Trinity, you can become flesh and just die, and maybe that'll work. That's not how God thinks. God is not ever searching for information. He doesn't need to, oh, that, it never occurs to him that something may not be according to plan. God has inexhaustible knowledge. The cross is all God's idea. It's the result of what God had planned all along. This was what was supposed to happen. The cross, that was a decision long before let there be was ever said from the mouth of Christ. The Corinthians, they loved words and ideas. They loved terms and themes like wisdom, knowledge, spiritual, mature. Most scholars think this is, these are the words they debated all the time. They argued over. And Paul brings them all together, all these buzzwords. He redefines them. He puts them in their proper theological place. And then he says, all of this is the work of God and not men. Remember, no boasting. Now, the eschatology part shows up in verse 8. And I mentioned this last week. That the highest religious body, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and the most powerful government body, Rome, cooperated together, and they're stated here as the rulers of this age, and they cooperated together in order to execute Jesus, who Paul calls the Lord of glory. Jesus was fully God, he was fully glorious, he was also fully man, and he was fully put to death. He's the Lord of glory in his death. And these rulers should have known better, but God had hidden it from them. Had they known, they wouldn't have toppled their own kingdom in this way. So false wisdom marked by a false power, upheld by a false view of reality, and all of it apart from the mystery that was once hidden but now revealed of the crucified Messiah. Everything centers on the crucified Messiah here. This theme of not knowing is part of Paul's explanation here. You'll see the word which in your translations. It shows up a few times. Verse 8, which none of the rulers. You might translate it that which. 
But he says, that which God decreed, that which the rulers misunderstood, that which no one understood, and then he finally says, that which God prepared for us. So the Lord of glory, in a, in a seemingly inglorious moment, he put gravitas, that's the Latin version of the Hebrew kabod, he put weight into the world. Through the cross, God put weight into the world. He put weight into the hearts of men, into those who love Jesus Christ. It was all his doing. No one understood it. The mature only get it because the Spirit showed them, which brings us to verse 10. Another chiasm here. Verse 10 introduces a new paradigm. The Holy Spirit's work in the present based on the past work of Christ on the cross. The divinity and personality of the third person of the Trinity is revealed here in that we find the Spirit is intelligent. The Spirit is also omniscient, just like the Father and the Son who sent Him. So we have, again, clear evidence of the Trinity. Verse 10 emphasizes the Spirit's searching of the depths of God. Go down to verse 15 and 16. The Spirit connects to the spiritual one who discerns all things. The Gnostics, they loved the deep things of God. Oh, they loved the secret wisdom and knowledge. Paul yanks that from them. And the only person who really knows the secret knowledge is the Spirit. That's the, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the only one who truly and intimately knows God. And he is the only one who truly and intimately knows the secret counsel and plans of God. It's not for you mere mortals to search the deep things of God. The secret things belong to God. So humans search for wisdom, and they do it, and they love it. The Spirit who knows God is the only one who can reveal it. There are, in verse 12 and 14, there are two people that are contrasted here. You have the Spirit-filled believer in verse 12, but you also have the natural or unbelieving, purely human man in verse 14. We, he says in reference to the believer, we are the ones who belong to the new age of Christ's kingdom. We have the Spirit of God. We do not have the Spirit of the world. The Holy Spirit shares the depths and wisdom of God with His people, maturing them for understanding. Listen, in your natural state, you look at the cross, you don't get it. You do not get it. And the only reason you do get it is because the Spirit who knows God brings that wisdom to you. You see, that He shares this wisdom and He matures His people. And their lives are marked by true spirituality. And true spirituality is cross-shaped. Furthermore, the natural man, he says in verse 14, the natural man is unable and thus unwilling to accept these things from the Spirit because he is predisposed to his unbelieving categories. It, this stuff is foolish, he thinks. A dead Messiah? Are you crazy? However, Paul answers, the only way to know these things is to have them examined and assessed by the Spirit of God. Unbelievers do not understand how to evaluate the cross because they lack the Holy Spirit. He's the only one capable of revealing these things. Natural men belong to the old age of Adam. Now, in verse 11, there's a parable. Almost every analogy of the Trinity in creation is a problem. But there is one that is interesting. I think Paul makes it clear here. There is, there's only one person who knows 
the thoughts and intention of a man. He says it's the spirit of, of the man. Do any of you know the thoughts and intentions of other people? You don't. Nobody does. The only person who does is you. Your spirit knows your thoughts. He has here in verse 11, there are three parts to a man. The man himself, particularly as a collective whole. Paul says his thoughts, and then he says his spirit. He distinguishes thoughts and spirit. This is a parable. It's an analogy to express the relationship of the Trinity. And again, it's, it's not perfect. If you go too far, you get into wonky things like modalism and other Trinitarian heresies. But he uses it specifically to describe the Spirit's relationship. The man himself, his thoughts, his spirit. Ready? There's God, his thoughts, and his spirit. And Paul says the, the Father is often simply summarized under the general rubric of God. When we say God, we can mean three persons collectively in their Trinitarian nature, or we can say God and mean the Father. And sometimes Paul do, does that. Some of the letters do that. But that's the Father. The Son is the thought speech of God because He's the Word of God made flesh. Jesus is the speech. He is the one that spoke, let there be light. And then we have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is obviously the Spirit of God who works in the world in tandem with the Father and the Son. So God's Spirit, he says, is the sole interpreter of God's wisdom. Your spirit and your body, you are the one who interprets your thoughts. So you think of your heart, which is the center, your mind. We usually think the mind's here, but really the mind's just the outworking of the heart, the center of who you are. But Paul says that's your spirit knows your thoughts, just like the Spirit of God is the one who knows the thoughts of God and interprets the thoughts of God. So he, the Spirit discloses Christ to man. It's the Spirit who brings you to Christ. It's the Spirit who unites you to Christ. And in verse 15, Paul brings it all home. One of my favorite verses, I preached on it last year in Africa. I love this verse. But he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. The Apostle Paul wants something to be very clear. Christians can speak about the identity of God, not because they have been educated in the schools of Athens, but because the Spirit has come to teach them about God, about His great work on the cross, and how to proclaim this to others. God's self-revelation came through Spirit and Word, not through rhetoric and philosophy. And let me say it another way. The deep things of God pertain to God's wisdom in saving the world. It's disclosed by the Spirit. It's made known through the preaching of the cross. And the one who is in the grip of the Spirit of God is not only not under the judgment of men, because only God can judge you, right? The famous rappers, only God can judge me. Yes, that should be terrifying. <laughs> but truly only Christians can say, no one can judge me. Because God's our, I mean, he's their judge too, but we're under a different, a different status here. But now he, he is called, this spiritual one is called to examine and judge and assess and discern the whole of reality based on God's self-revelation. And we find that in Christ and in his word. But to what end? Paul says at the very end here, verse 16, so that we might develop the mind of Christ, which is a quote 
Paul quotes Isaiah 40, verse 13. And the mind of Christ is the mind of Yahweh. Jesus is linked to Yahweh here. God. Spiritual people have the mind of Christ, and thus they live for Christ, and all of it is centered on the cross. If I could summarize the whole thing in one word, that's what it would be. So how shall we then live? I want to start with a question. Think about it before you answer. What is a spiritual person? What is a spiritual person? If I, well, if me or you, if you were to ask a, your average churchgoer, it's a great question to ask anybody. Lead with that in evangelism encounters too. Hey, I have a question. What do you think a spiritual person is? And you will get a lot of answers. Some will be tempted to suggest that spiritual people are, for example, in tune with their emotions and, and they think there's a higher power out there. That's, you know, general spirituality in the world, sort of Eastern mysticism meets paganism. You know, there's a lot of that. Um, some will say that. Put some Christian on it here. They are people who go to church. They read their Bible. They might pray before meals. That's what some people would say. Well, that's not what Paul says here. The spiritual man, the spiritual one, like the Holy Spirit, examines, judges, discerns, investigates, and assesses everything in life. Verse 15, it's right there. Spiritual people are Holy Spirit people. Using a word associated with the courtroom, Paul says that true, spiritua true spirituality is spirit-filled reality where the subject inquires of the facts in order to hear the case, to make a judicial ruling. It's all legal language here. The cross of Christ, in other words, that's the lens through which we see all of reality, and it's the standard by which we make judgments about life. We're supposed to judge everything in life, not in a condescending fashion. We filter everything. We filter everything through the authority of God's Word, and we carefully pass judgment and draw conclusions based on Scripture. We critique and question and examine everything. The spiritual person is a mature person. We're going to get to that next week. And the mature person is a covenantal person, a man who sees the world through God's law. And quite simply, spiritual people judge. Don't buy into this line where don't judge me nonsense that you hear. See, Jesus said... you. Don't you shall not judge. Well, judge not, lest ye be judged. <laughs> There's this misunderstanding of, of Matthew. But spiritual people judge. They're not marked by human wisdom and their subjective feelings. They are marked by shrewdness and a judiciousness and a deliberately intentional manner of living. We're thoughtful people. We go about our jobs and our, our relationships thoughtfully. And we examine them. We don't get into the assumption game and, oh, they must be thinking this because I feel insecure about this. And all of a sudden, it's just nonsense. No, a spiritual person is one filled with the Spirit who examines and judges and discerns correctly and investigates and investigates. There is a thread here. I, I want, I'd like you to see this because I think it will help us apply the passage. The whole, the whole thing is Trinitarian. Paul uniquely states these ideas and, and concepts with the Spirit of God. He starts with the Spirit of God, and then he goes to the Son of God, and then he finally lands on the Father. And here's what he says in this passage. For example, it is the Spirit who searches the deep things. What are the deep things of God? Well, it's Christ and His work. The Spirit searches the deep things of God. It's the Spirit who knows the thoughts. What are the thoughts of God? That's Christ. 
It's the Spirit who gives grace. Well, what is grace? It's Christ. The Spirit gives the grace from God. We have the Spirit and the things, the things are Christ, of God. And lastly, he says, the spiritual one, the one who's filled with the Spirit, has the mind of Christ, which happens to be the mind of God, Yahweh. All of these things, verse 13, are imparted to Christians. They're deposited in our minds, in our hearts, by the work of God the Spirit. Spirit-filled, spirit-filled people do not have some higher level capacity on a strictly human level. Spirit-filled people aren't just more superhuman. Apart from the Holy Spirit, there are no spiritual people. So if somebody says you're spiritual and they're not a Christian, they're not spiritual. The Spirit transcends our human capacity. It makes us new creations. If, if someone is truly a mature spiritual person, then the wisdom of Christ in the gospel centered on the cross will be their guide for all of life. The cross will influence every thought, every emotion, every attitude. Having come to Christ, we now have open access to the mind of God because now we have the mind of Christ. Our thinking is patterned after his thinking. We're supposed to think God's thoughts. The Spirit, he links our vocational capabilities with God's will, which means that there are those who receive this mind. They must work to understand this new mind so that this new mind can be imparted to others. See, the Spirit quite literally sets our minds on the right track. If there is anything that I could say about the utter chaos and stupidity of our current culture, exemplified especially in the political arena, I will tell you, it seems as though people have lost their what? (laughs) Their mind. (laughs) I've heard our vice president say things I thought, oh, it's amazing. Not to just pick on her, our president isn't any better. We just think that there's no mind that is on the right track. It's just, you've lost it. And of course, getting our minds on the right track works itself out in marriages and our vocations, our living, and so on. But Paul doesn't mean here that suddenly when we come to Christ by the Spirit, that suddenly we know everything there is to know about everything. We don't, we don't have an encyclopedia downloaded into our brains though I'm sure they're working on that. Instead, when we are renewed in Christ, we know things, new things, but things pertaining to Christ and our origin. Where do we come from? If you want to speak of losing your mind, imagine believing you evolved from apes. Our origin, the creation, things like meaning. Is there meaning in life? What about ethics, morality, things of the future? Christians have their minds transformed by God's revelation for God's revelation. And the natural man, he says, doesn't know the mind of the Lord, and nor can he direct or instruct or counsel God. The only way to think clearly and rightly in the world is to have the mind of Yahweh, which Paul says we have the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ See, only the Spirit illuminates our minds so that our thinking and believing falls in line with God's wisdom and truth. Unbelievers cannot see the glory of God, which means they cannot properly judge the things of the world. Unbelievers are blind to the most essential questions of life. But this is why the Spirit is required in our preaching. 
The Spirit is required in our preaching. When we proclaim the wisdom of the cross, the Spirit uses this to win men to the Lord. It's that simple. We get kind of timid about evangelism, and I know not, not everybody has the same gifts, but when you think about even sharing the gospel with someone, we can be very timid because we think, well, I'm not eloquent enough. Moses used that excuse. You know, I'm, I'm not this, I'm not that. And, and rather than having the mind of Christ and saying, I have a crucified Messiah that I must proclaim, and you can center it on that. You don't have to go into the philosophies and the rhetoric and all of this stuff. It's just a simple, faithful proclamation of the cross. It's a very simple thing. And, and you think, well, how could that merely do anything? Well, because the Spirit's the one who does it. He's the one who carries that message out into the world. And some people are going to believe it or they're going to continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And we don't know who's who, who has God elected, who has any. That's not our business. That's the secret counsel of God. But we must preach in a world of unbelief. And I love what Calvin says about that. He says this, For delirious and even dangerous are those notions that though the internal word is efficacious, yet that which proceeds from the mouth of man is lifeless and destitute of all power. I indeed admit that the power does not proceed from the tongue of man, nor exist in mere sound, but that the whole power is to be ascribed altogether to the Holy Spirit. There is, however, nothing in this to hinder the Spirit from putting forth His power in the word preached. In other words, God never speaks in vain. His Spirit never works in vain. All that God intends to do with and in the world, He does. He is utterly effectual in the use of the Word to call men to Himself. So I will say, be careful coming to Christ. He isn't one God among other valid gods. Christianity isn't one option among other equally valid religious options. It is the only truth option. He is the only true way, and being brought into Him by the Spirit means being separated from the world of sin in the old age. It means that we have a clean break with the thinking of unbelief. We no longer create our own version of truth based on the faulty sands of rationalism. We are no longer permitted to decide for ourselves that which is evil and that which is good. We are brought into Christ, the second Adam, and now we mimic His ways and thinking. And we think God's thoughts after him. The deep things of God, that's the mystery of Christ, made visible by the Spirit, now guides our lives each step of the way. Hearts and minds and lives, a completely new direction in life. The mind of Christ makes you think different about everything. And what each of us must do is flesh out this renewed mind of Christ. All of life is to be viewed through the cross. Uh, Christian maturity and spirituality ought to be expressed in terms of the ways and instruction of God. See, our whole perspective on life is supposed to be centered on that crucified Messiah. It's supposed to be guided by the cross. Our entire attitude each and every day, our disposition when dealing with others and dealing with the world is to be oriented to the all-demanding gospel. So how are you applying God's wisdom in your life? some questions to leave you with. How are you applying God's wisdom in your life? Are you acting in a manner consistent with the gospel? Are you being renewed each day by the scriptures so that the mind of Christ is demonstrable in your life? 
Are you treating the cross as foolishness by thinking you can go your own selfish way? Are you discerning correctly and judging properly based on the revealed word of God? Or are you consistently making bad decisions because of a lack of prayerfulness, perhaps unconfessed sin, perhaps you are thinking autonomy is the way to go? Whatever the case, friends, settle your hearts. Rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that that is where the power to reorient your life and your thinking can be found. And a true theology of the cross sees that this power and wisdom is, is meant to sustain you and embolden you each day. Let's pray. Merciful God and Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that you have come to us and revealed yourself to us by your spirit. And so we ask and we pray that you would consecrate us unto yourself. Help us to be truthful about who we really are in Christ and not believe the lies. Help us to know that this mind of Christ is cultivated by the power of the Spirit who drives us back to the word that he inspired so that we might judge faithfully and discern with wisdom. I pray that you would embolden us and help, help us to truly know your word so that our minds can be reoriented and established in you. We ask this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our King. Amen. Amen.